Well, as Nevin said, we've, we had the, uh, the scripture readings flip-flop, so let's turn over to Psalm 139. And uh, there's really not a main text for our sermon this morning, which uh, as we've been saying as we've worked our way through this <coughs> short series that uh, is unusual for us. And next week, this is the last of this series on biblical manhood and womanhood, and Next week, we'll be launching into um, the study of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, going verse by verse through it. It'll take us some, some time. It's a, a lengthy book, um, but no better time to start the book of Luke than Advent, which starts next Sunday. And so it, it's a little bit weird this year because Advent starts relatively early because Christmas is on a Sunday this year. And Advent, Christmas is not part of Advent because Advent is the lead up to Christmas, lead up to the coming of Christ and it's in the church calendar. So uh, uh, ad, this is early as Advent will ever come, I think, because Christmas is a whole week after the last Sunday of Advent. So, but on your calendars, you can mark uh, Advent starting, Christmas uh, being on a Sunday. We will have Christmas service, but that's probably it. We won't have Sunday school or anything like that. And then on the 23rd, which will be on the Friday, we'll have our annual Christmas Eve Eve service uh, where we get together and sing carols and read through the, uh, the story of Christmas from the Old Testament all the way through uh, the new, uh, the coming of Christ. And so I um, invite you to that. We usually have a dessert fellowship. I'm sure more information will be coming out about that in December um, in the, the few weeks before. Uh, but you can mark that. I think it'll be at 7 o'clock on, on the 23rd evening. So... Just kind of, you can have that marked down. Well, let me read from Psalm 139. It's a key text along with Romans 1 that we read earlier uh, of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Another psalm to the choir master, a psalm of David this time. And this is what God inspired uh, David to write. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? 
I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Thanks be to God for his word. and May he write its truths uh, in every part of scripture upon our hearts. Well, we enter into a perilous study this morning. Uh, Rose was just telling me about a prominent pastor at a a large church um, who was preaching similar types of sermons as we've been covering and had people walking out during services and those types of things because of these things are heightened. And today is, uh, if not, not, no exception to that, and in fact may be the pinnacle of such um, uh, cultural vitriol and, and even within Christianity, uh, confusion and um, disagreement about these things, and so we enter into it uh, prayerfully and considerately and humbly, uh, talking about the issue of gender confusion as we, uh, as a kind of keystone uh, idea that is really going against the um, all the theology that we've talked about over the last ten weeks or so, and uh, I, you know planned this uh, series out uh, ahead of time and actually had to adjust it, had to remove one sermon because we had our missionaries visiting and so kind of adju- kind of combined two things into one. So it was originally going to be 12 weeks to get us to Advent and, and then it became 11 weeks and it just so happened that this was the last sermon and it was not planned. And so I have to say this again, I'm not really worried about anybody in the room, but uh, you never know, things get on the internet and, and who knows what's out. Uh, today apparently is Transgender Remembrance Day. And it's not on purpose that I'm preaching this sermon, but I, it may be on God's, well, it certainly is by God's providence. Um, and then last night, there was a tragic shooting at a gay nightclub in Denver uh, where five people were killed. Just horrible, horrible act of uh, violence and murder, um, regardless of who uh, uh, or what the venue was. Uh, clearly, we would disagree with the venue and, and uh, the life choices being made by many there inside, but they did not deserve uh, to be murdered or injured or terrified in the way that they were. And uh, so we say these things in the context of a world that is completely broken, disheveled in terms of these issues. And so um, our hearts should break uh, even as we discuss these things. Uh, Because as we'll talk about, these are people made in the image of God filled with dignity and worth. And we have a culture that is leading them completely astray. And then we have evil that continues to be perpetrated in our world in all kinds of various forms. So that's a a preamble to what we're talking about. There's a little boy named Coy Mathis who back in 2013, there was a Rolling Stone article that had these words And this is the opening statement of that article. It says, by the time Coy Mathis was four years old, he knew one thing was for sure, that he wasn't a boy. And this article about a child in Colorado who was convinced that his physical body did not match his true identity was one of the first keystones. Uh, That and um, uh, Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn Jenner, those are probably the two keystones that have 
that, are, that even sociologists have looked at and point to as being the sparks that ignited this uh, conflagration of transgenderism in our culture and, uh, and uh, bringing it to our forefront. Though these things have, you know, of course there have been those who would have dealt with this, would have been called different things throughout history, but this is nothing new, of course. Nothing new under the sun. But Coimathus, his parents at first were confused, but if you read the article, you see that over time they accepted Coy's professed gender, and soon his closet was filled with dresses, and his parents began to be involved in a legal battle over his access to girls' restrooms at his schools. That was unusual in 2013. Unfortunately, it's fairly commonplace now, these types of stories. And some of you here this morning may be witnessing this firsthand where you live and work or in your own families. There are an estimated 1.6 million people in the United States who claim to identify as transgender. Um, they claim a gender identity different from the sex that they were assigned at birth. That's the technical definition. Transgenderism in recent years has permeated the news. There have been debates about bathroom bills, workplace policies, athletics, and in all the flurry of the media, we cannot forget, and, and this is why it's important for us, that we're not political in nature, that this is ultimately about people created in God's image, like Coy Mathis, like Caitlyn Jenner. So what does the Bible have to say to those who feel like exiles in their own bodies? And what do we as believers say to people we love if they struggle with gender identities? That's what we want to think about this morning. Not easy questions, not, um, you know, the most fun topic for me to have read about over the last couple weeks and to be thinking about. But what I want to do is first think a little about, again, the Bible's teaching on gender and wrapping up uh, our study, coming back full circle and thinking about our theology of gender and the human body, and then consider some implications about how we can love those who uh, maybe experiencing gender confusion, how we respond to a culture that is embracing this. Uh, I'm not going to comment too much on laws and policies because they're not always the same. Uh, a, a law protecting people's rights might be different than what we would say to them as, as believers and what they should do in submitting to the Lord. So I'm not going to really talk about laws or policies, but I want to think primarily about how God has made us and look to the ultimate hope that we have in the gospel. No matter the extent or the area in which our brokenness surfaces. Another thing to note is that we're not primarily talking about you know, homosexuality and those issues this morning, though there, it's a, certainly a related issue in the way we should think about it, and there is a lot of crossover in terms of how we love and care for those struggling with same-sex attractions and those who are um, you know, plunging themselves headlong into, the, uh, into that world and that lifestyle. But we want to focus more narrowly on the question of gender identity this morning and what it means to be created male and female, how it could be that some people feel their bodies are not a gift but instead a prison, and how all of us as broken people can find hope in Christ. So that's, that's my goal this morning. So first I want to talk about this, again, biblical theology of gender and, and the body and the human body. This is a fundamental truth, right? And it goes back to, again, you're going to, think I'm a broken record, but it's where it all begins, back in Genesis, right? That the fundamental idea is that God created men and women in his own image. So Genesis 1, 27 and 28, which we've looked at a lot. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male, created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So included in the very good of creation is the creation of humanity as male and female. For the last 10 weeks or so, we've stressed that men and women are 100% equal in their dignity. They're equal in value and worth before God. And yet at the same time, we've seen how we, we can unashamedly recognize the biological differences between men and women as actually not an, an insignificant thing, but a wonderful part of our Creator's design for the world. With sexually differentiated bodies, God chose to exhibit His image in men and women, and in doing so, He did it in different and yet complementary ways. And so in the goodness of God's design, Genesis 2.25 describes how Adam and Eve were fully at home with God and with one another, while also being perfectly comfortable in their God-given gendered bodies. Right? Genesis 2.25 says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked. There was no disguising who they were. There was no way that you could mistake Adam for Eve or Eve for Adam. And yet even in that sense, before the fall had come, before sin had entered, their, their nakedness was not giving them shame. They were not ashamed of who God had created them to be. This is not a call for nudism, right? Please keep your clothes on. Um, we live post-fall. <laughs> and so, uh, but notice there was no gender dysphoria. There was no internal conflict. There was no discontentment with who God had made them to be. So it's important to acknowledge that human sexuality, being male or female, is an objective, biological, binary trait. An objective, biological, binary trait that is determined for each person by God himself. What David says in Psalm 139 that we read earlier is true of everyone. You, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So how do we summarize a Christian view of gender? Well, it's clear that unlike what our culture is saying now, gender is not merely cultural or psychological. But that our theology of gender involves, first of all, the physical body. It certainly involves our body and our physical sex. That's part of how we're using the word gender uh, in, in this series, to refer to the fact that you have been created male or female, including your physical body. As a man or a woman with hormones and sex chromosomes and flesh and bones, uh, you embody the image of God on the earth as a man or as a woman. But then beyond the physical body, there are God-given dispositions that God has created. That in addition to our fundamental physical differences, God has also given men and women you know, distinct dispositions, which we've been discussing throughout this, this series. There is such a thing as masculinity and femininity. And there are objective parts of those things that go beyond culture, as we saw in our explorations of Genesis 2 and 3, and how those dispositions become more formalized through roles in the homes, in the home, Ephesians 5, and in the church, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, for instance. But thirdly, and we do admit this, that there are cultural expressions of gender as well. The biblical view has no problem recognizing that there are cultural expressions of gender that are value neutral and change from era to era. And that's, uh, you know, I mentioned that if you looked at... Uh, uh, advertisements 
in the 1800s, mid-1800s, for children's clothes, pink was a color associated with boys. And that is certainly not the case now. It's been morphed, and we think of pink as more of a girl's color. And, and that's, the reality is, right, that colors don't have gender associations. They're culturally accepted. And different cultures throughout times have accepted different colors uh, for different expressions of, uh, of gender. So men in Enlightenment, in, in Enlightenment France wore tights, makeup, and wigs. Today we don't. And maybe a lot of us are happy about that, looking at the way that you had to get dressed to go to work in the 1700s, right? So clothes and hairstyles and colors, you know, the Bible doesn't spell out what women or men should wear in particular because of the cultural uh, changes that will happen. Though it is significant to note, and we talked about this, that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul does expect men and women to present themselves as such, as men or women, through their appearance in ways that made sense in their particular culture. So, when he talks about men having shorter hair and women having longer hair, culturally that was, that was what ident was identifying as male and female. And so Paul encourages the Corinthians to embrace that cultural thing. Not because of the culture is right about everything. Of course not. But what Paul is saying is that you should not rebel against uh, your femininity or your masculinity. If you're a man, then you should dress and you know, have a hairstyle that looks like a man and so far as a woman, and, uh, and we would go along with that today. But then again, those things change uh, today, different expressions of that. So yes, there is nothing wrong in a biblical view of this to say that cultural expressions of gender have varied across time and culture, and they aren't core to what it means to be a man or a woman. But that doesn't mean that gender is only cultural. Because we, as we've explored, the Bible, I think, says in totality, that gender fundamentally is something that you are, not just a way you dress or behave. It is a part of who you are. It's a part of who God made you. Now, let's take a moment to contrast that with the secular view that's becoming prominent today, probably is the prominent view today for a lot of people. We have a progressive and postmodern culture that says that your sex is only and merely biological, right? You either have male or female chromosomes, anatomy, and hormones, but that, that, that is just your biological sex. That gender is purely psychological and cultural. Gender pertains to your inner sense of identity. And that is socially defined. And it includes things like behavior, appearance, clothing, roles, so on and so forth. And a lot of modern theorists argue that there is no necessary, they, this is what they believe, that there is no actual connection. There is no correlation at all between your physical, biological sex and your perceived gender identity. And this, I think we can say, uh, as we've explored this for 10 weeks or so now, that this is majorly a divergence from biblical orthodoxy, from the biblical view. Here's an article in Slate, what they had to say. Not a, certainly not a uh, Christian magazine. Gender is a kind of performance something we actively create from the limited cultural materials we encounter. That's their definition of gender. Something you perform and create with the material we have in society. The writer in this article asserts that babies and toddlers are genderless. 
and uh, rails against people who would dare to do things like gender reveals. How do you know? You don't know what gender your baby is when they're born. This makes gender radically subjective, right? It's only known to that person, and no one is able to tell them anything else. And this view opens up the possibility of having the wrong body connected to one's gender identity. Others report gender identity that doesn't correspond to masculine or feminine at all, but somewhere in between, or or fluidity that uh, uh, kind of ebbs and flows. So these way of thinking, this way of thinking asserts that that your sex, your sexual orientation, who you're attracted to, and your gender identity, who you understand yourself to be internally, are all separate and they're not necessarily correlated at all. They have nothing to do with each other. What you look like, what your DNA says, what your chromosomes are, has nothing to do with who you're attracted to or not attracted to, and that has, and neither one of those have anything to do with your identity of how you consider yourself, masculine, feminine, or some sort of genderless person. Now, it's probably scandalous to say this within our culture today, but we must be clear, I think, as a church and as Christians, and we say this, not with, I, I pray not with malice, but that the Bible simply rejects this understanding. Her gender, being created either male or female, being men or women, is on purpose, and it is in fact a gift from God. And it's a holistic gift that includes our body, our sense of identity, our dispositions and roles to which God calls us. And all this leads to the question is that then why do some people seem to experience distress and inner conflict about their gender? Well, that's the next point, that the fall has distorted us in both our bodies and our minds. In Genesis 3, that we studied, because of Adam and Eve's sin, God curses the ground, and death enters the world, and and therefore the fall, which was mankind's rebellion against God's law, is at the very root of every physical and spiritual ailment that afflicts us as humans. So, how does it affect our bodies? Well, we know simply sickness and death are the results of the curse. That unless the Lord comes within our lifetimes, all of us will experience death. That comes from the fall. Some of you are experiencing sickness. Some people that are home are experiencing sickness. That's because of the fall. That's the incursion of sin into our world. So in conversations about sexuality and gender and attractions, the question gets raised about individuals uh, and, and why they feel the way they do. And we can simply say that a simple answer is to say, that, well, sin and the fall and the curse has brought about all this into our world. And when we talk about these types of things, sometimes it will get raised, well, there are people who are of ambiguous or intersex anatomy, and that's true. Both male and female characteristics do sometimes show up in, in an individual. Statistics tell us it's only about 1 in 1,500 children that are born with some rare disorder or sexual developmental uh, issue or intersex trait. And as Christians, we can reply that this rare and challenging condition, like other physical and genetic disorders, still stems ultimately from the fall. And therefore, parents, their doctors, and their pastors have to apply biblical wisdom to counsel and make decisions, showing love and care for those created in the image of God 
And uh, I believe there's a grace there. But that is not the case for 99% of people. When we're talking about transgenderism specifically, we're not talking about ambiguous anatomy. We're primarily talking about someone who is clearly born male or female and yet doesn't feel that way internally. And as Christians, we have to remember that the fall doesn't just affect our physicality, doesn't just affect our genetics, doesn't just affect our ability to get sick and die, but it also affects our inner person too. This is what the Bible refers to as the heart, our emotions, our inward life. Romans 1.18 that Nevin read for us says that men and women suppress the truth about God. Well, that's internal. In verse 21, uh, we read that men and women did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Romans 1, and you could add Romans 8 in that as well, teach us that, that nature around us, the natural world as we experience it, is not nature as God originally created it. Therefore, just because something seems natural in a fallen world doesn't mean it's right or whole. This is why I think Christians really made a mistake, particularly in the 90s, about trying to die on this hill, about you know, fighting about whether or not someone is born gay or, or experiences these things from birth, trying to say it's all about nurture, it's all about... Because it doesn't really matter. It's probably a combination of all of it. We're messed up biologically, we're messed up emotionally, we're messed up psychologically, and we're messed up culturally, and all these things play a part into our confusion of sexuality and gender in our day and age. Jeremiah 17.9 laments this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Or another translation says desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Well, how different is that than a culture whose primary dogma is what follow your heart. Follow your desires. And the Bible tells us that the heart that you're seeking to follow is desperately confused and broken. Outside of Christ, all of us view ourselves in inaccurate ways. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter your, your uh, attractions. It doesn't matter whether you line up with you know, uh, gender cisnormative culture or not, all these different terms that unfortunately I've learned, all of us are broken. And we're all broken in terms of sexuality. We all have aberrant desires that we have to conquer and we have to control. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man. Seems right but its end is the way to death. Our hearts are not infallible. The way things seem to us, the most scary thing, especially as Christians, that we can say is, boy, it seems to me. Well, be careful that what seems to you is taken to Scripture and checked because it's the only thing outside of ourselves that is infallible. We listen to God to find out who he has created us to be. We don't listen to ourselves. Now, I don't presume to understand everything going on in the mind and heart of someone who identifies as transgender or someone who struggles with uh, 
you know, homosexuality or struggles with other uh, internal things. There's clear biblical precedent, though, for that there is deep confusion in our hearts about our own identities. And since we all have distorted views of ourselves in various ways, it means that we as Christians should be able to respond with patience and with gentleness and with actual love and care to those who experience tension and confusion and conflict about their gender or their sexuality. We know, we must know that by God's grace and power, people can change, and at the very least that they do have the ability in Christ to conform their behavior and thinking to a biblical worldview, even if all the time they're still struggling about that inside. It is through a greater knowledge of God and His Word that we can all grow in having a more accurate understanding of ourselves, whatever our struggles are. Because all of us who trust in Christ should attest to that reality. On the other hand, we do have to be clear that rejecting one's God-given gender or God-given outlet for sexuality is a sin. And sin always has consequences. And like all sin, it leads to pain, despair, and ultimately... The worst thing is that it will ultimately lead to eternal punishment under the righteous wrath of God. To reject your given sex, you see, is ultimately to reject God's lordship as creator over your life. And so we have to resist the logic of the world, which is how can something be wicked if no one seems to get hurt, if no one else gets hurt. Well, there may be a case for that in politics, but friends, Disobeying God is always wrong. It's always evil. It does not lead to human flourishing. It does not lead to happiness, ultimately. You see, transgenderism and postmodern sexual ideologies of all stripes teach us to think of our bodies as some sort of blank canvases that you can do with them whatever you want. But the Bible's teaching on creation and falls and the fall shows us that we should see our bodies not as blank canvases, but as flawed and fallen creations of God to whom we owe obedience. Think of your favorite painting and imagine it that it becomes broken and distorted. Uh, there's a movie, I don't know if it's the best movie in the world, it's called Mr. Bean. You know this guy? Mr. Bean, uh, in the movie, the spoiler alert for Mr. Bean, the movie which came out like 20 years ago. Uh, but in the movie, he's kind of accidentally worked his way and they think he's some sort of art conservator, historian, person. And he's fixing Whistler's mother, this painting of Whistler's mother, this famous painting. And he accidentally, he messes it up and he tries to fix it himself and he tries to repaint it and just ends up this awful looking thing with a giant nose and just horrific, right? And I won't tell you how it all works out in the end. You can go watch it yourself if you want. But that's the way we try to do when we take what a master has painted and we try to fix it ourselves, right? It's not going to turn out well. Could you restore the Mona Lisa? Could you fix Starry Starry Night? No, you couldn't. You would try to understand, and I, I, I watch this YouTube channel, it makes me calm. And it's a guy who does, and his last name's Baumgartner. Baumgartner Restoration. Again, check it out, local times and listings, I don't know. It's on YouTube. Uh, and he restores paintings. He cleans them and fixes them and touches them up, and he's really good. And he always says, says the main thing that a restorer does is they don't want their work to be shown. If you're an art restorer, you don't want it to be, oh, look at the restoration. You just want to look at the, 
artist's original painting. That's what you want to bring out. And so he says, no, you try to understand the original creation and you seek to restore that. To live with how the designer created that piece of artwork to be. So you do it Baumgartner style, not Mr. Bean style. Well, we have a culture that says, do it Mr. Bean style. Restore it however way you want. Scrape off the old and put something that looks new on it. But God says, no, seek to understand the flaws. Seek to understand the sin. Repent of that and turn to Christ who might repair and restore what was broken in us. So what's our hope? Our hope is the gospel. Our hope is that Jesus came and took on human flesh, lived as a man, fully embodied, fully human, came to redeem sinners from every effect of the fall, no matter what type of fallen self-perception or delusion has defined us. Let's not forget that Jesus was known as a friend of prostitutes and sinners. He came not for those who claimed to be healthy and have it all together, but he came for the sick. For those who, like all of us, have rejected God in outwardly obvious ways. Or how Paul puts it in Titus 3, For we, had our, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Jesus, the perfect man, came to die in our place to give new life and forgiveness to those who would repent and believe in Him. And he rose from the dead, which leads us to the third theological point. That the fact of the resurrection affirms the goodness of our bodies. The gospel declares that Jesus rose bodily from the, from the grave. And in his body, he was still a man. And all men and women who are united to him by faith will rise bodily as well. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the image of a seed being buried in the ground and then rising up as a glorious plant. In other words, although our resurrection body will be unimaginably better than our current body, although I can't even imagine how it could be better, um, though it will be gloriously better, there will be some continuity between our identities here and our new creation to come. God created us male and female in his image, and we will image him perfectly in heaven. And I think that means that in some sense we will still have our God-given genders in our resurrected bodies. We will know one another. We will, there will be continuity. Now, why do I say this? Because in contrast to that teaching, a key pillar of transgender thought is that one's internal sense of gender identity trumps their physical anatomy. Mind over matter, like Greek Gnosticism of the old. A person is reduced to these separate components, psychological identity, which is what is true, and physical sex and physical components that are only illusions. That is Gnosticism 101, and that's a heresy. The psychological component in these things is always given greater priority. Right? It's not a slam dunk, even if you just think, not even from a Christian perspective, <clears throat> but if you have... If you were just presented with a case, like if we'd never heard of these things before, we say I have an individual, and his body says he's one thing, but his, 
His mind says he's something else. Which, which do we choose? Well, culturally, how would you decide that? Our culture always has chosen the untangible, the, the mystical, the mystery, the psychological identity. It's that case when it comes to modern psychology. You can't control yourself because of what's happened to you, because of your psychology. Therefore, even though your body wants, is causing you to rebel in certain ways, really it's not your fault because of your psychology. There's this fascination with our psychology, this unseen psychology, to say that it has greater priority than our physical bodies. And when you think about it, people who do this are trying to play God, exercising their sovereignty over their own existence. They probably don't think of it that way, but that's what's happening. Christianity, on the other hand, says that we need not pit our soul against our bodies in this way, our spirit against our bodies in this way. God created us as united beings, body, soul, spirit. The resurrection of Jesus is God's signature endorsing the fact that he sees the body as a core part of our human nature, both now and into the world to come, that we will not live out our existence as disembodied spirits floating on clouds playing weird harps. That is not a biblical picture of the afterlife. The ultimate existence for human beings is in a resurrected body on a new earth living in a physical world with physical bodies, eating food, doing things. The body is not an accessory. We need to be careful at funerals that we don't refer to the bodies of our deceased loved ones as merely shells or merely housing chambers. That body, which is why we take care of it, why we're careful with it, even culturally, is because we realize that it's not some just disposable piece of furniture that the soul of the person, which is the real them, used to inhabit, as if we're really some sort of ghost spirits that float around and we just happen to be inside these bodies. No, our bodies are not just housing chambers for the soul. They are really who we are. When we do a funeral for a loved one, we commit them to the Lord. We commit their bodies to the Lord because we know if they're in Christ, we know they're already with the Lord, awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. And we have hope that on the final day, there is not a single child of God who will experience any disconnect between their body and their sense of identity, whatever that is. There will be no more confusion. There will be no more struggle. There will be none of this. And the resurrection of Jesus points us to our hope for that day. That we are resurrection people longing for the age to come. Longing to have the problems with our bodies finished with. So, having said all that being clear in our understanding of what the Bible says about our gender, about our bodies. What do we do? And how do we show the love of Christ in a world that celebrates the opposite? Let me give you some suggestions. The first is to seek wisdom. We are not called to walk this road alone. This is why we need to be continually studying the Word of God together. This is why we encourage you to ask your elders for counsel, to read good books. Because all of our jobs and our cultures are going to be asking us to carry out policies we disagree with. And there is not always an easy black and white answer for how you do that. 
When should we protest? When should we implement policy with acknowledgement of dissent? When do we need to quit our jobs or, or, or rail against them? And when, do we, when is it okay for us to, to go along for the sake of peace in our world and yet continue to preach the truth in our churches, in our homes? These are not easy answers. Every situation may be different, and we need to pray for the wisdom to know how to react in the days and years to come. And we ultimately pray for wisdom from God, who calls us to seek wisdom. Much will depend on our situations and the way the policies are worded, but we need to seek wise Christians and wisdom from on high for help. To recognize this is, this is difficult. These are not easy. How do you deal with family members and friends going through these things? This is not easy. And I'm not going to stand here and give you blanket answers for every situation and pretend that these aren't sometimes heart-wrenching, difficult decisions. Which is part two. Having sought wisdom, we need to adopt postures of compassion with those around us. When we think of someone we know who identifies transgender or who struggles with their sexuality, a whole host of factors need to be taken into consideration. Where that person is, do they claim to be a Christian? What are their other sins? What are their family dynamics? What, is, what other pain or abuse has been inflicted by others? There's a whole plethora of, of things to be considered. It's not to say that anyone would be right to embrace an alternate gender identity. No one gets a free pass on sin because they feel that their proclivities are natural to them. We've talked about this already. And no one gets a free pass on sin even if there are reasons in their history or their past. You know, a lot of angry men are angry because they grew up with angry dads. That's true, but having had an angry or abusive past does not give you the right to be angry and abusive in the future. It may be a correlate. We may be able to see why this happened, but then the case is to break that cycle, to trust in Christ and to say, no, I have control over my emotions. I don't have to be angry and mean and abusive even if I was abused. So the, it's not a free pass, but we can understand some of these things. But above all, we are to have compassion on those who, if they're genuinely going through this, are going through something that must be radically confusing and disorienting. Remember that many people who embrace alternate gender identities have been sinned against in terrible ways. Not all of them, but some of them have. A lot of them endure memories of everything from verbal abuse to the very worst things we can imagine for what they wore, how they behaved, or what they looked like. And we have to share God's disapproval and hatred of bullying and violence and vitriol that gets hurled at human beings created in God's image who are deserving of respect and dignity, even as we seek to share the truth of the Bible with them. And particularly, if you have a family member who announces to you that they're struggling in these areas, let me encourage you to make your first response always an attitude of love. To tell them that you do care for them as a person. Because beginning with a response like that is not to endorse a person's decision or position, but to convey a commitment to love people in spite of how they are tragically rejecting God's created design 
But eventually we do have to do the next thing, which is speak the truth and the gospel in love. If someone we know informs us of a way that they're going to live that is outside of biblical uh, instruction, we need to pray for opportunities to speak the truth to them in a way that's appropriate to their relationship. You speak differently to a sibling or to a son or daughter or to a friend than you do to a stranger. And I would urge you to be quick to listen, to try to understand what has brought them to that point, and when prayer and listening are present, seek to boldly and yet tenderly share not just how you understand our gender to be a gift from God, yes, share that, but most importantly, share with them the good news of redemption in Christ. This is so fundamentally important. Our main job and our main goal for people of all kinds, regardless of whatever they're struggling with, isn't to fix them of their ism. But it's for the gospel to take hold of someone's life or for them to come to Christ. And then we trust in Christ to do ongoing work of renovation in the hearts of human beings. We've said, we said, this, we've said this before about those in the homosexual community that our greatest goal for, for LGBTQ people is not for them to become straight, but for them to be saved. And then we pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in their hearts. That's what we want. That's what we want for the transgender community as well. And at some point, you're going to have to share with them how you're the worst sinner that you know. Not them. That you have own, your own brokenness that shows up in different areas. And you may need to talk about some tricky details. And it's going to be different and difficult of how you navigate people who now have different names and different pronouns. These are not easy things. It all depends. It all depends. To balance showing respect and maintaining a relationship, but wanting them to understand that you, you cannot endorse their decision or their lifestyles. And we need wisdom here. We should avoid unnecessary provocations, Romans 12, 18, but recognize we're called to uphold the truth. And that's a delicate, difficult balance. And this is something that uh, Brian reminded me about when we're dealing with folks is to also constantly guard our hearts. Guard our own hearts so that you're not, uh, that your own relationship with God isn't tragically affected by the, the choices that your kids or your family members or your friends make. That your relationship with God is first and foremost and your love for Jesus needs to be more important to you even than the love of your children or your friends or your family members. As difficult as that may be, it has to be central or you'll never make it and eventually you will be swayed by them for your want of a relationship. You will be swayed to different positions because again, the heart is deceitful above all things. The gospel call isn't primarily about gender and identity. It's about dying to ourselves, submitting to Christ, and the joy of walking in the light. And what's most offensive about Christianity isn't really the Bible's teaching on sexuality. 
It's the fact that we are sinners deserving of God's wrath and we are saved only by trusting in a Messiah who was crucified. Rosaria Butterfield, a former practicing lesbian converted to Christ, says something quite profound. She says, I wasn't saved out of homosexuality. I was saved out of unbelief. Because we are all born sinners and we need new birth. We don't say, get yourself fixed and then come to Jesus. We say, come to Jesus broken and allow him to put you back together. And Russell Moore is right. He's not right about everything, but he's right about this. That as local churches, we need to be talking about this now because even as studies have shown, there will probably be refugees from this sexual revolution that will be coming into our churches and coming into our personal orbits, people that have tried it and have gone there and have even had surgeries and therapies and have found themselves to be even more depressed and they're looking for compassion and there will be difficult days ahead when the promise of gender fluidity doesn't deliver the happiness that people seek. Will our church be ready if the Lord decides to receive these folks with open arms and to help them? Imagine that God could lead your friends, your family members, or people we've never even met to repentance and to life everlasting. And for any sinner, including our transgender friends, know that repentance is really hard. When you trust Christ as Lord, you're declaring war against your sin as an enemy. And yet, praise God that repentance is a gift from God. And his power is able to produce real change in us. But wisdom, as always, is needed to determine what repentance looks like in an individual situation. It, it's likely going to be very complex sometimes. What, what, how do you help a transgender person who has received hormone therapy or body-altering surgery and has now realized that this was wrong and a mistake? How, how do we consult with medical professionals to determine the safest and best ways for that person to fully embrace their God-given gender and sexuality. We cannot promise that any particular temptation or dysphoria will instantly go away when somebody becomes a believer. That's not the way often God works. Sometimes it's the way he works. And there are examples even in our church of sinful desires that God simply takes away, but that doesn't, that's not the case for most of our sins. We still struggle with them. It's part of our sanctification, right? My buddy Zach and Colorado says his sanctification was severely tested yesterday when he attempted to go to Costco the weekend before Thanksgiving. We shouldn't hold out false hopes that becoming Christian makes everything better in this life. It's that it makes everything better ultimately. But that may come through a season of trial and struggle. It's possible to be in Christ to be embracing one's own God-given gender and still struggle and battle from within, waiting for that day for glorification and renewal, which is why we ultimately seek to persevere by God's grace. Persevere. Continue to show love to family and friends who may disagree with us about gender and sexuality and trust that God will be gracious to sustain us as we seek to hold our convictions and to pour ourselves out in service, mercy, and love to those around us. 
because this is what Jesus did when he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He spoke the truth when it was unpopular, and yet he laid down his life for those who rejected him. And may he give us the strength to love like he loves, even in a world so confused by these things. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and our hearts break, and yet there is the gleaming hope of the gospel for all sinners, regardless of what any person may be struggling with, what sin that they struggle against, whether it has everything or nothing to do with the things we talked about this morning. We are all sinners struggling and need of salvation. And may the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died in our place, absorbing the wrath of God for those who would trust in him, may that be a source of hope for whatever it is, however sin has broken our lives. And may you help us to be a people, individuals, and a church of both truth and compassion, for we serve a Savior who is one who never compromised the truth, and yet who was always compassionate with broken sinners. And so as beggars ourselves, may we lead other beggars to the only source of bread. As those who are thirsty for righteousness, may we lead others who are also parched by this world to the river of life and to the flowing water that never fails. And as you fill us up, may our cup run over with compassion and gospel love for those around us. And may we sing now, even now, of your love for us in the gospel as we close our time this morning. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.